I'm Anthony Sharwood, Environment Editor at HuffPost Australia, and this is Breaking the Ice, our series of conversations with people on the front lines of climate science. Here on Breaking the Ice, we love talking about climate. We just love talking about climate. I find it fascinating, and most of the subjects that we've spoken to find it fascinating. We've heard from scientists in this series who can talk about mud on the bottom of the sea being the most interesting thing in the world, given all the stuff it tells us about the climate. And the same thing with when we spoke to Jason Box, the glaciologist out on Greenland. Oh, boy, could he stare at ice all day and make the ice fascinating. We really, really have been privileged to speak to a lot of people who make climate interesting. But something occurs to me. These people are out there doing work. 95% of the time, they're doing other stuff. So when it comes to talking about climate, I guess they can perk up and, and, and motivate themselves to be a bit energized to talk about climate and make it interesting to, to suckers like me on the end of the line. We're going to talk to someone today who's a bit different. We're about to chat with Amanda McKenzie, who is CEO of the Climate Council here in Australia. And Amanda... You spend, oh, I don't know, pretty much your whole working life and probably a lot of your life outside your day job talking about climate. So I've got so much to ask you today, Amanda McKenzie, but the first thing I want to ask you is, do you ever get bored of talking about climate change? (laughs) That's a really good question. And um, in some ways I do, I suppose, because you end up saying the same thing over and over again when you're trying to communicate on an issue. So... You know, I've been saying one particular line, um, Australia is the sunniest country and one of the windiest for 11 years now. Um, I have heard many other people use that line, though, so it is (laughs) gradually catching on. But on the other hand, it is such a multifaceted issue. Obviously, it affects every aspect of our society. And so what it originally drew me to climate change was that I cared um, about a whole lot of social justice issues, whether it was refugees or human rights or inequality and climate change exacerbates a whole range of those issues. So I suppose because of the uh, scale and uh, severity and breadth of the issue, uh, it makes it constantly interesting and changing. Well, that's a good answer. So you don't get bored of it. What about something I wonder? You have been in climate for so long. Um, You were the founder of the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. You're now the CEO of the Climate Council. Um, you're the second CEO I've spoken to this week, by the way. One of them uh, was a, a massive climate change denier. I'm not going to uh, tell you who that was or in what context I spoke to them because that'll give it away. Um, do you ever meet anyone who is on that side of the fence? Do you do you have much interaction anymore with people who simply do not accept the science? And before you tell me about anyone in that context in your professional life, is there anyone like that in your personal life? What's been really interesting is um, over the time that I've spent working on climate change is you see um, we've just seen a massive decline in people that uh, would say they don't think it's happening or they don't think that humans have any role to play. 
And um, whereas in the past, they're not kind of close family and friends, but people that you might meet at a barbecue or something like that that would, um, you know, get me in a corner and start raving about how climate change wasn't happening, that actually doesn't happen anymore. And one of the barometers I have of public opinion is just uh, the views of taxi drivers. Taxi drivers meet a lot of people. They listen to a lot of Alan Jones often um, and a lot of different radio stations. So sometimes they're a good barometer of where the community lies. And for the last sort of two years, maybe three years, you're just hearing less and less uh, in that commentary from taxi drivers about climate change being something that is not happening and much more about concern about weather uh, events that are happening, extreme weather events getting worse uh, and enthusiasm for renewable energy. So I feel like the community's moved a long way in the last 10 years and the bulk of the community absolutely thinks climate change is happening, it's caused by humans, We need to do something about it, and renewable energy is one of the key solutions. Okay, well said, and you've put out a report on renewable... Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. (laughs) I could spend the next 100 years talking about renewable energy, and I don't think I'd be able to pronounce it, but I just did. It's a miracle. Okay. Well done. Thank you so much. Renewable energy, renewable energy, renewable energy. Here's what I'm trying to get to. You just said the words extreme weather events. I think that this is one of the most interesting communication issues with climate change, and I know that you do too. Yesterday, the Climate Council, in fact, it was last week, the Climate Council, you put out and put your name to a press release in the wake of Hurricane Harvey or Superstorm Harvey or whatever we're calling it in America. And you said, climate change is now supercharging extreme weather events, including storms, bushfires, heavy rainfall and floods. This is occurring in a more energetic climate system that's warmer and loaded up with more moisture than ever before. The fingerprints of climate change are all over Harvey. Now, there are so many scientists, Amanda McKenzie, that agree with you on that. The key issue is this, and you said it well yourself, but I'll just put it in my words, which sort of paraphrase those of Michael Mann. And and it's basically this, that... Climate change didn't cause Harvey or, or events like it. It just changed the odds. It changed the equation. It made them much more likely. I know that's the message that you put out there again and again, but I want to ask you this question after the longest wind-up in the world. How soon is too soon, Amanda? Was it too soon? Because there's a big debate going on this week about that. Mm. How soon is too soon to put that message out there with a disastrous event which has caused a lot of misery and in many cases loss of life? Mm. It's a really good question and people are speaking about it. What I would say is when there is a car crash, for instance, it's really important to understand what were the factors that caused that car crash. When someone dies of lung cancer, it's important to talk about, well, was smoking a cause? How did smoking impact on that person so other people can learn from their experience? Similarly, when there is an extreme weather event, it's crucial that we talk about climate change at the time while it's happening, while everyone's focused on the event, so that we understand some of the key factors which are climate-related. All, all weather events are now affected by climate change. We've raised the global temperature by one degree. That's a whole lot of heat in the system that wasn't there before. So it is exacerbating extreme weather events, often making them more frequent and severe. So we need to make sure we have that information at hand. It's talked about at the time. That helps our community, our emergency services, our fire services, our health services prepare for the future as these weather events continue to get worse. 
So I think that argument that, oh, you can't talk about it now because people are, are hurting is is absolutely wrong. It's the opposite. We need to talk about why those people are hurting and how we need to tackle this issue so things don't get worse in the future. Okay, and I think the Climate Council made a really, uh, you know, pushed by you as as its leader. You, you made a decision, didn't you, a couple of years ago with heat waves uh, in Australia because they're probably the natural disaster that we get the, the, the most of, uh, heat waves, mm-hmm. bushfires slash droughts. You actually made the decision to, to link it to the climate discussion at the time of the event, didn't you? Mm, we did, and we were probably one of the early organisations to do that. Um, the thing is, the science is so clear on this. So something like heat waves, for instance, it's been very clear that um, as global temperatures have risen um, consistently around the world over the last um, 200 years, but particularly in the last few decades, that we've seen impacts in Australia. So hot, extreme hot days have doubled in Australia in the last 50 years. We see heat waves coming earlier. They're happening more often. Um, the duration of the heat wave is longer than it used to be. The hottest day of the heat wave is hotter than it used to be. And so while these events are happening, it's important that we clarify what are the, uh, what's the role of climate change in this event, because that's when the public is focused on it um, and means that that's when you've got, got everyone's attention. And it's important that that uh, helps us to then prepare for the future and worsening heat waves into the future. I think you've probably made the right decision. You may ruffle feathers at the time, but it probably works. Not for me necessarily to judge, mm. but but that that's that's my gut there. Um, well, the people that tend to come out and say, "Oh, how dare you speak about this while people are hurting," tend to be those that would uh, tend to deny climate change. So they don't want you talking about it at any time, let alone a time when it's going to be most potent and relevant. Well said. Now, let's talk a little bit about. The Climate Council. Now, for those who don't know, the Climate Council used to be or was formed out of the smoking ashes of a thing called the Climate <laughs> <laughs> the Climate Commission. The Climate Commission was set up in Australia by the Gillard Labor government uh, in 2011. It sat there doing climatey stuff, preparing reports similar to the stuff you do now, providing information in two, 2013. The Conservative government under then was under Tony Abbott was elected. They shut you down in a blink. You knew that was coming. You started the uh, Climate Council sort of uh, in, in the depth of night as a not-for-profit, uh, as a uh, publicly funded organisation. You are still here four years later. Are the publicly uh, people still funding you, Amanda? Absolutely. So the lion's share of our funding comes from uh, people that give once a month or once a week, $10, $20, and they absolutely keep us going. So we have been a community-run organisation or a community-funded organisation since the very start, and we continue to be. So we're absolutely reliant on the community thinking that we are doing a good job and that we're important in the debate. So it's the little guys that really make the difference. I mean, I, I read a story where, um, or I think I heard you say something once about um, when when you launched and news got out that the Climate Council was a thing and you were sort of crowdfunding yourself, you got half a million dollars in like the first day and PayPal just had this little red alarm bell that just went ding, 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 ding. And they shut you down because they went, nah, this is not real. You're faking it. You're money laundering. This can't be real. But did you really get half a million dollars in the first day? Yeah, it was absolutely incredible, actually. I describe it as sort of a cyclone of media coverage over that day. So 
We'd been sacked, I think it was four or five days before and abolished by the government. And we then very rapidly set up a basic website, fundraising platform, and then went out to the public and said, look, we think what we're doing is really important and we'd love it if you got behind us. And the response was incredible. Within that first day, we'd raised half a million dollars, as you say, and in 10 days, we'd raised $1.3 million, which was roughly the budget of the Climate Commission. So put us back in business. And that was, those donations came from about 15,000, 16,000 people right around the country that just said, look, we think that science is critical to our democracy. We think that accurate information is critical to a public debate on climate change. And we're not going to let this organisation just disappear. Do you find that you've got a certain freedom now that kind of suits the vibe and suits the material you, you, you produce and that if a government were to be elected that was more accepting of climate science and the sort of work that you do, and if that government were to say, come back on board, we want to reinstate the Climate Commission, mm. w- would you go back out of, out of the sector you're in now and into the government sector? Well, we were independent as a Climate Commission, but outside of government entirely, there is additional perception that you're independent, and obviously we, we are, and it does give you more freedom. So, for instance, when we were the Climate Commission, an independent body but uh, funded by the government, you, we didn't have much capacity to do you know, uh, social media, for instance. Yeah. It needed all of these different approvals and it was all very complicated. But now we've, um, on our social media, Facebook, Twitter, we're able to reach 8 million people a month with really uh, quick reactive content, videos, etc., to reach or a different audience than we might reach from the media. So I think we've been much more effective being um, totally outside of government funding. And so... Uh, we wouldn't go back. I think we're in a, a good place now and having that community funding means that we can stay independent. Which is great, which is really good. But I don't have to pay, um, you know, I don't have to crowdfund air traffic control and I don't have to <laughs> crowdfund, you know, any a, any other what I would consider an essential scientific service. Um, you provide some pretty necessary service. You're out there, you know, your reports are... Um, a bloody good. I don't. I don't uh, sort of want to want to polish your boots too much here, Amanda. But the Climate Council produces really good stuff, and that's just a <laughs> fact. And 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 environmental journalists and anyone out there, if you're not stealing facts from their reports like I do about 16 times a week, you are absolutely kidding yourself. You know, Amanda, I do sports reporting as well, and there's a particular cricket website called Crick Info, and I steal every single fact in the world off Crick Info because I have this unbelievable database of statistics regarding everything to do with the game of cricket, and your stuff's sort of the same. Your reports, whether it's the Adani coal mine or or something about renewable energy like you did this week, or actual mm. heatwave statistics, or God knows what. There's so much of it out there. It's bloody good stuff. And now I'm on this rant, and I forgot what my question was. But <laughs> but I, I, I think it, 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 it might have had something to do with um, the fact that I don't have to pay for other stuff. I think this stuff is mm. absolutely essential. Why should people have to pay for it? Well, I think that's a good question too. You would expect the government to be providing um, or provide services that provide accurate information to the public. But at the same time, um, where this is just the reality that we're in, whereas you know, you've seen government cuts to the CSIRO, for instance, and a whole range of other essential services. So 
in this environment, it is important that we uh, we exist and that the public provides our funding and, and make sure that we're able to do what you're saying, provide that information for a huge range of different people. So we find that schools, universities use our reports for their education work. We find that businesses use it for when they're thinking about whether they should invest in renewable energy. We get um, feedback from all, people from all sides of politics saying we use this information in speeches and to inform our policy development. So it is really critical information and that we've put together and our website is a huge resource. But that said, I think we need to be continue to be as independent as possible and the way to do that is continue to be funded by the public. And that website for uh, it's free plug time because you've given me you've given me half <laughs> on a busy day. That website, ladies and gentlemen, it's climatecouncil.org.au. Uh, there's almost nothing you can't find there except your daily astrology charts. Maybe you should put those on and make make it a bit more of a pop culture environment. But but no, that that's just being silly. Hey Amanda, talking about pop culture, what do, what are you into? What do you go home and listen to? Hmm. Well, when I get time to watch, I have to admit that I have been watching The Bachelor. Um, <sighs> that's probably a terrible thing to say publicly, but it is that sort of trashy TV that um, we were. Uh, we've been travelling with some of my colleagues this week, and we all watched it last night and laughed laughed up a storm. It's pretty funny. Do you reckon he's <laughs> what's his name? Maddie is this Bachelor called Maddie? Is that his name? Yes, yeah. Maddie J. Do you reckon he's he's a bit of all right? Well. So he seems all right. Um, they don't really get into much of what he thinks about contemporary politics or issues. So, <laughs> you know, I don't know if he'd really be right for me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know if he would either. Does, are you putting a little call out there? Just because we have tens of thousands of downloads occasionally to the to the right podcast. It's usually between about a thousand and many, many thousands, even tens, depending on how the podcast goes. Are you just seeking our vast audience and putting putting feelers out there, Amanda McKenzie? <laughs> no, I'm already taken, actually. Um, oh. But I'm sure, you know, some of my colleagues may well be interested. So, <laughs> Well, I met some of them at, the, at a thing the other day at the launch of that report, and they're all utterly delightful people. So if you're lonely and you're into climate, uh, get in, get in, go, <laughs> go to climatecouncil.org. You set up a climate, climate dating service. To <laughs> wow. What would we call it? What would we call it? Now, now, I mean, like some sort of a pun on, on Tinder or, you know, or something. Um I don't know, but... Yeah, you'd have to have a, a tagline of it's getting hot in here, wouldn't you? Oh, Amanda, you're so good. That's why you're the CEO and I'm just some bloke in the corner asking you questions. <laughs> oh, that is very good. Okay. All right. A couple more. A couple more. Um, when's the last time you got really, really mad? Because you're pretty level-headed and you're, you're, you're pretty on the level, but you must get mad sometimes. I think I did get mad watching uh, the coverage of Hurricane Harvey um, this last week. It, just to see such extreme flooding, uh, I think something like 10 to 15 trillion gallons of water fell on Houston over that period. And to we've been warning people about climate change for a long time. Scientists have been telling us about climate change since, you know, the 1980s or even before. And to see someone like Donald Trump at the same time saying America should be pulling out of Paris and doing less on climate change, and um, it's pretty frustrating. And similarly, seeing our own government 
uh, failing to take necessary steps on climate change and uh, do what is necessary, not only in the energy sector, but all of the other sectors that need to be tackling this issue. You know, it's not a nice to have to tackle environmental issues and particularly climate change. It is something that absolutely affects our health, our well-being, um, our very like life and livelihood. So to see that sort of destruction in Houston w- makes me angry because it makes me very much worried about what that means for our future here in Australia, but people around the world. And at the same time, there was a huge flood in Bangladesh which killed about 1,200 people. So this is real. It's happening right now. It's not some sort of future issue that we can hope to deal with later. If we don't tackle it now, we really leave our, our children in a very bad situation. Well said, Amanda. The um, just the mess the messaging that you do. I want to just talk to you a little bit about that. You said something that just um, really, really um, reminded me of a conversation I had on Breaking the Ice two two weeks ago or two episodes ago with John Cook. John is the Australian uh, climate mm. communicator. You know, John, based in the US. Um, we had a two part chat with John, and and he was actually talking about. Frank Luntz. Frank Luntz was the Republican strategist who first, back in the 90s, set in motion the whole Republican narrative about climate change denial, which, as you know, very closely mirrored the whole tobacco industry spiel. Mm. One of the things he said, I'm quoting John, quoting Frank Luntz now, John Cook, the, the climate communicator, quoting Frank Luntz, the Republican strategist, and John said one of his most famous quotes was, if you want to get a message across, you say it over and over and over and over again until you're sick to death of saying it. And only then people are hearing it for the first time. Now, I heard Mm. you say something very similar recently, and you said your theory is to make a resonant message um, with trusted voices saying over and over and over and over again, the same thing. And that's when you change the public discourse. So, hey, that's pretty interesting, isn't it? You and the conservative side are both using the same tactic. Who's winning? Yeah, it's a good question. It's Well, I suppose it's not rocket science in terms of how you change um, public opinion. It is, um, I think we can sometimes think that facts will, will win the day, which is not necessarily the case. It is really what gets said the most. And we have facts on our side and we have the expert opinion, but we also need to package that up and say it in lots of different ways that are relevant to people and um, and say it over and over again. I think that ultimately we are winning the public debate. I think most people in Australia, um, this is brought, brought out by the polling, say that climate change is happening, extreme weather is already getting worse now. They understand that it's a uh, an issue that needs to be addressed by the government. Um, they similarly understand that renewable energy is a solution, that it's positive, that it's cheaper than fossil fuels and we'll need to, to invest in it heavily. The The main issue is when you've then tra- changed public opinion, do you get the sort of political change that is required? And at this stage, we're sort of in a political quagmire at the federal level where Alan Finkel has come forward with a clean energy target and there is much consternation in the coalition as to whether they will go forward. So you need both the public narrative to shift, but you also obviously need some of those key influences to um, to shift their perspective as well. Well, I wish you luck with the facts, Amanda. And the fact is, you were really, <laughs> really, really interesting to talk to. And I absolutely loved having you on Breaking the Ice. And I wish you well with all, all your work. And just thanks for being here. 
Thanks very much for having me. And that is Series 2 in Breaking the Ice. And thank you all so much for everybody who has listened. We have, as I said in uh, that episode there with Amanda, had tens of thousands of downloads. And it's really great to see everybody engaging with this. And the good news is we are going to be back. That's not going to happen till later in September or early October. Just taking a big breather right now. But thank you so much for being part of it. See you soon. 